Okay, so welcome back. In today's episode, I'll be interviewing a psychologist called Hodi Damastani, who has been absolutely uh, amazing for me personally. Um, I had some sessions with him over, you know, over probably a two, three, four year period uh, that helped me deal with a lot of my emotional traumas in my life. Um, Also helping helping to set up some of the pre-performance routines that I teach in my training courses. So uh, really excited about interviewing Hodi and I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Okay, we're live. So welcome today, Mr. Hodi Damastani. Hi there, Gary. Thank you for having me along today. Yeah, I'm really excited about this episode, actually. So um, I just thought we'd start by just defining the topic of the podcast today. So could you just give an explanation as to what emotions are, uh, just so that we can understand the parameters before we delve Well, I guess the textbook definition, if you like, would be a strong feeling deriving from one's circumstances, mood, or their relationship with others would be the general term of what emotions are. Okay, so if, if we can maybe make that um, relatable, I guess a good place to start is, where, when do you know uh, whether you should perhaps ignore, ignore emotions or whether you should be dealing with them in the moment? Is there kind of some kind of parameter there? It's a very difficult one because uh, one of the things I always say to my clients is, you know, very few things in life are black and white and most things are a kind of gray area. I mean, one of the thinking styles that I deal with so often with the people that I see is something called polarized thinking. So something's either helpful or not helpful or functional or not functional. Um, and I think it's a difficult call to make sometimes. So clearly, if an emotion is not serving you in some way and there's no message that's of any use behind that emotion, then you could then argue perhaps it's not useful to be experiencing that. But sometimes even unpleasurable emotions can be meaningful and can be functional. So emotions, I guess, a very broad way of categorizing emotions is they can be pleasurable or unpleasurable, but that doesn't necessarily mean the unpleasurable ones aren't helpful, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay, so if we can delve into this a little bit. So uh, for me personally, I, as I've got older, I've got better uh, understanding my emotions. But there's certainly been times in my life where I wasn't even aware that I was under emotional trauma or even had any knowledge at all that it was an emotional emotion that I was feeling. Mm-hmm. Is there any advice that you can give someone or how, how do we go about, you know, not necessarily labeling the emotions, perhaps that's what it is. I mean, I think you understand. Well, I think, I think first of all, one thing that you do and uh, not so many people do these days, unfortunately, is just spend a bit of time working on your mind in the first place. So having self-awareness is the choice to put time aside to exercise and develop that self-awareness, isn't it? And I think that's something that, that you do and um, a few people that we know do, but generally speaking, most people don't. So I think first of all, it's that choice to want to understand yourself and to want to examine your thought process and step outside of what's happening and start to examine the way that you think, the way that you feel and the way that you experience the world. I think that's a choice to want to do that in the first place. Okay, so say a listener to this has suddenly said, right, I want to sort this out. What would be some some cast iron ways in which they could do that? Because over the years I've tried loads of different ways from meditation, emotional clearances, therapy with yourself, there's a loads of different ways. Obviously, self-reflective journaling, keeping a video, voice diary, video diary. I mean, there's endless ways. Mm. Are there some, you know, one or two ways which you feel as a practitioner are the most bang for your buck? So, what can someone do okay. that's going to give them? Um, well, I think you're right that actually 
There are so many different approaches and sometimes it's about finding, I mean, all those you listed are just fine. And sometimes it's about finding the approach that sort of fits best for you as well. So there's a certain sort of element of what's the best fit for you. Meditation may be really good for you and maybe not somebody else's bag for whatever reason. Um, but I think it's really understanding that a lot of the time, um, if we take the sort of cognitive behavioral model, it's the thought that then creates the emotion most of the time. So if you can understand the thoughts that then creates the emotion. So in other words, what is the sentence that has created this feeling, whatever this feeling is? You know, what, what is the statement? What am I telling myself about this experience that is then creating this emotion? So it's almost stepping back before the emotion to understand the thought. And there's always some, um, discussion and disagreement as to whether the the, uh, the the cognitive model is thought then creates emotion or if you know if it's a fight or flight response from the more primitive part of the brain then it might be the emotion that is before the um yeah the, i was going to say thought. that Chachi. that's really interesting because there's certainly times when personally i can catch the thought and i know what it is but also contrary to that there are definitely times where i'm have no thoughts and i still have strong emotional reactions and feelings to things okay so have you got some perhaps you know say for example um you're suffering from a negative emotion mm -hmm. in the moment and you you don't know why because i i, I was there mm -hmm. for a lot of my life i'm feeling strong emotion i used to feel it in my face funnily enough uh and i didn't know what to do mm -hmm. is there something like a coping way or some way of just alleviating the symptoms in that moment that, that would help well i think I mean, one way of looking at anxiety, for example, using that as an example, is this distinction between cognitive and somatic anxiety. So, you know, if you are responding to the sort of fight or flight, primitive brain kind of response, then the first thing that's often helpful to do is to breathe, first of all. So to have a sort of somatic strategy that you use and to breathe diaphragmatically rather than breathing from the chest, which is where we tend to breathe when we're anxious. How, how could you do that? Is it like breathing in for a certain time, breathing out for a certain time? It's, it's more about noticing where you're breathing from, first of all. So okay. it's about recognizing that there's nothing happening in your chest, but to bring the focus of your attention more into your belly. And as you breathe in, imagine your belly inflating like a balloon and then slowly in controlled breathing out. So there are various ideas of sort of holding and counting perhaps for sort of three to five seconds in and three to five seconds out. So does that does that work because it's distraction or does it work because you're taking in a different level of oxygen? You're I think, a bit of both. Sorry, I think exactly, <laughs> yeah, a, bit, yeah. a bit of both. Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, there's just, it certainly activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which will soothe you and what is responsible for you feeling content and calmer. Um, but also it is a distraction as well. I mean, I one of the things I do for people, for example, is develop sort of pre-performance routines, yeah, yeah, yeah. not just for athletes, but for, for other people as well if you're about to do something that you feel might create nerves then having some kind of uh, routine that you go through in your mind that might consist of something you see something you say to yourself and the whole idea behind that is it takes your focus of attention away from the unhelpful thoughts and onto the routine so something that I do as part of my profession is um, when um, people want to go and talk to someone they find attractive, um, say in a cafe or in a bar during a day, it's a very stressful situation because you're put in an environment where you could instantly be rejected. So mm -hmm. you get an instant flight or fight response. Something that I educate my clients to do is pre-performance routines. But mm -hmm. the two that I found work best for, for myself, one is a power pose, which mm -hmm. may sound a bit silly, but you literally pull a pose like you just won the 100 meters mm -hmm. um, at the Olympics. 
because you start like changing your body language to feel powerful and strong. And the other one is via an affirmation. And the affirmation question is, you know, if you could give, if you could give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be uh, in one sentence? So you, what you do is you say something mentally for your mind and you move your body as well. Mm -hmm. Are there any other pre-performance routines that are proven to work in the moment or is it more they're the kind of two main ones and it's more visualizations in advance and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's a good strategy you've got there, good routine. I think um, if there's something you do with your body and something you say to yourself, that is fundamentally, that is normally, that's what makes up most of these routines. But there is a a wide variety of things that you could say to yourself. So you could re remember your accomplishments, things you've achieved in other areas, okay. and that will give you the confidence that you can then do this, which improves what we call your self-efficacy, your belief that you can achieve this certain outcome. So it might be you remind yourself of things you've already accomplished. Um, the PowerPoint stuff is good and there's evidence um, that hormonally there's changes as a result of that. Your testosterone levels increase, your cortisol levels decrease. So that that's that's always a good thing. Um, but I think in terms of the internal self-taught, the dialogue, there are a number of things you can say and a number of directions you can go. So you could ask yourself a question um, as you do. You know, mm. what what would I do? Um, as long as you, as long as there's something you feel that it's an answer you can come up with, that's great. I think the only a uh, potential challenge of that is if you ask yourself a question in the moment and you're feeling nervous and you can't come up with an answer then yep. that could potentially fuel the anxiety so statements of some kind uh, are often more helpful than questions mm. but it, it depends uh, absolutely your your experience they're spot on i get people to think about affirmations in advance because they right. can't do it in the moment because the, the fear gets in the way um, I, I feel like we should we should delve into some specific emotions here. So, um, for example, the, the feeling of overwhelm. Now, this is something that when I was younger, I didn't realize that I really struggled with. And in my experience, the way which I deal with overwhelm is to simplify. So I, I look at the end of the spectrum. What's the opposite of overwhelm? Simplify. If I feel like my life's too simple, I complicate it a bit to make it a bit more challenging. Now, that's the way I cope with it. But there's also something else that I've struggled with for many years as well. When you're looking at your calendar over the next month and you're feeling overwhelmed, even though on a day-to-day -day basis you can easily cope, you're looking at the next month and you're feeling overwhelmed at that. Now, I, I, there's a lot of things you can do like live for today only, look at your calendar for today. Is there any other way of dealing with the specific feeling of being overwhelmed um, that I'm perhaps not aware of or not looking at? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, it depends how you define overwhelmed. I mean, your explanation makes sense to me, but I guess it's one of these things that everybody experiences the experience of being overwhelmed in their own unique way, don't they? Yeah, and overwhelmed is not an emotion, it's an experience. Um, so, oh, so that's a good point. So what would the emotion be? And that's the thing. And that's, that, really that's the key point. question. So that, that would be, it's like when somebody says to me, I'm stressed, that tells me bugger all. Yeah, if yeah. someone said, I'm stressed, well, what does that mean? Some people, when they're stressed, they're angry. Some people are sad. Some people are frustrated. So actually being able to differentiate that is going to be, um, allow you to actually diagnose your problem better. So if, if we, for example, say, say when I feel overwhelmed, um, typically when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling like, it's a really good point actually, honey, I feel like 
I'm scared that I won't live up to the expectations that I put on myself. That's still not an emotion, but it's a bit closer. No, but it gives us more information we can do something with. So okay. for me, overwhelm is a, is a little bit sort of ambiguous as is stress. So what I, what I want to do is ask you exactly that. Well, when you're overwhelmed, yep. what do you tell yourself? What do you feel? Yep. And then if we can make that a more tangible, um, either emotion or a thought that's yep. driving that experience, then you can start challenging and balancing that thought in a way that's constructive. Yeah, so I challenge it. I can challenge my own rationally. But what would be the emotion if we delve into this for me personally? Is that fear, I guess, by the sound of it. So fear is actually an emotion. Yes. Okay. And obviously there's different types of fear. Yes. And this is just my experience. Obviously, um, I've done a lot of journaling and thinking about fear. In my experience, there's always a level underneath. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're scared. What's the level underneath fear? Say there's like 15 different types of fear. There's probably more. Mm -hmm. Is there a level underneath fear? That boils down to underneath it on a, on a psychological level because you're you're scared of not being good enough you're scared of not being loved you're scared of getting old but what's okay but why is that is there a, is there a reason why you fear those that's a good question it's a very deep question i think um i think there are various things that various experiences that create fear for different people um if we break down and have a look whether that fear is coming from a a sort of brainstem fight or flight kind of fear is it you know is it a sort of a fear the fight or flight life or death kind of fear or is it a fear created by the internal rules that you're setting yourself and then it becomes more of a kind of cognitive higher brain sort of so it there are it's a difficult one to answer there are various kinds of fear some people they live their lives with a hum of anxiety because they don't feel they're quite living up to the internal rules they've set themselves. Other people find themselves panicking and having panic attacks because they are experiencing this fight or flight, Mm. adrenalized kind of fear. So there's different intensities of fear and there are different words that describe fear, but... um, So it's it's difficult to, I guess, to to, to know exactly what everyone's feeling because emotions are so independent and actually in my experience it's very difficult to talk to someone about emotions because what they feel and what i feel the words we give them are different exactly it's the same word but the emotion is always different exactly so is is um the feeling of shame is is that also linked to fear or is that a completely independent emotion so I, i'm specifically um, talking about toxic toxic shame here and i, okay. I wanted to delve into an experience I've had in the, the last few months just Okay, to... no, that's slightly slightly different. If I'm honest, I haven't had as much experience with, with that particular emotion, but it's certainly a different mo- a emotion. Different... Than, than fear. Than I, fear. Yeah, yeah. interestingly enough, because I've had therapy with Hoddy in the past, and during one of our, we did a hypnotherapy regression session, and one of the things that came up was, um, was the feeling of shame. And I didn't know that you could even have a feeling of shame at the time because I've never experienced it. Would you say, it. sorry to interrupt, would you say that feeling is similar to disgust? It's a feeling of um, I've done something wrong and I feel like I'm going to get caught out or something's going to catch up with me. Like I, I'm ashamed of something that I've done okay. and, and it's going to so catch that's up with still, me. So that's still thought processes around that, which is relevant. But so, but is it the, the feeling itself, is it so the same, fe- or similar, same or different to disgust? Um, it's completely different to disgust, actually, because this disgust is more... Um, I don't feel disgusted at myself. I would be disgusted at other people. Okay. Perhaps they're linked. Okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah. I was going to... I wanted to... I wanted to uh, one of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on today and talk about this, and I haven't mentioned this to Holly in advance, is I want to talk about an experience I had recently. Mm-hmm. So um, I was on a three-day training course, and often I get anxiety on the courses because they're, they're quite... Um, 
six hours a day for three days, quite emotionally tiring. I'm not really hungry on the courses. So it can be quite traumatic. But during one of the courses, I, I recognized that I was actually going through an emotional trauma. And I'd been having the same emotional trauma on every single training course I'd ever done. I just thought it was normal, okay? So I came home and I did a meditation on it. Uh, and I thought to myself, when did I first feel like this? And it took a while for me to actually go back to this memory. But I've had experience of regressional therapy with you, mm -hmm. and I decided that I can handle going back myself. And what happened was really interesting. Uh, I went back to an extremely traumatic event in my life when I was about six years old. Um, it took me about an hour of running it through to process it. I have my own way of processing through meditation. And what happened after that was weird. For the next four days, I was in bed processing about what felt like a hundred thousand different memories since that moment. I felt like I'd been repressing. I'd been scared of feeling that emotion since I was six years old. And mm -hmm. that emotion was, in my experience, shame. That's how I label it. Mm -hmm. And any time I'd have an opportunity to feel like that, I'd blocked it. And what happens is when I went back to when I was a child, when I analyzed it, I realized that I'm an adult now and I'm not scared to feel like that. Mm -hmm. And then what happened for the next three or four days was I had an eruption of all of these memories since where I've been blocking that feeling. Mm -hmm. The impact that's had on my life has been absolutely profound. Um, I can't tell you the difference, just about every conceivable thought that I have is different compared to what it was like before. Mm -hmm. um, is this, Interesting. Yeah. is this, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you've done a lot of therapy. Funny enough, I had another experience about two weeks after that when I went back, had a similar experience uh, and this time round, um, I was about four years old mm -hmm. and I had like a clam in my hand and I was trying to open it and I, and I wouldn't allow myself to and it went away. So I almost feel like there's still something there, whether I'm ready to deal with it or not, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but even after that, I felt lighter. Yes. Um, and my whole my whole life, honestly, I cannot tell you how different I feel. Is this, it's obviously, emotions are powerful things, right? Yes. Yeah. And the fact that those life scripts are written out for you very early on in your first sort of seven or eight years of life, you know, it's the whole sort of Freudian sort of idea, isn't it? Um, and, you know, there's definitely more of a, a trend towards the sort of cognitive behavioral stuff seems to be more popular at the moment. And I did, do tend to use that more often. But as you know, from the work that we've done, you know, I think it's really important to understand that very good question you ask yourself, well, when did I first, when was the first time I felt this particular feeling or had this experience? And then sometimes the way that that is encoded in your, in your brain and in your body, then will have an impact on all the other experiences that are similar in that way. But as you said, you had that ability to make that distinction, to be able to step back and to recognize, well, I was a vulnerable child mm. then, and I'm not a vulnerable child now, I'm an adult now, mm. and uh, I'm able to, to look at this more effectively and to be able to step back and to recognize as an adult that I feel more empowered and stronger and being and able to cope with, mm. with these particular emotions now. It's absolutely true. I mean, I was reasoning with myself. I was having a discussion with myself, trying to convince myself that the only way I managed to actually reframe it in my mind by saying, look, this has helped you till now. Because this feeling, actually, funnily enough, I've, I've channeled it in my life. So I've channeled it into reading development because it's such an awful feeling. I've channeled it into good things. And I, from my understanding of psychology, I could have easily channeled it into taking drugs or mm -hmm. alcohol abuse. So it served me. But since I've become aware of it, I, was, I wanted to let it go. Uh, and it was only like with some reasoning, rational reasoning with myself as a child, I could yeah, do that. Yeah. I, it's, it's such, um, 
it's, it's such an interesting experience and I'm not going to lie I was extremely scared mm. I was extremely scared of what I might uncover when I get back because this stuff was so deeply ingrained and progressed mm-hmm. in me um, and I guess for most people your advice here would be if you have this feeling that I've described would be to go and see because I think trying to do it by yourself yes is, I think it's safer to do it under the supervision of a professional definitely but I think going back to what you were saying as well it's also recognising that actually um, you know, you, the, it's the whole sort of um, the inner child work is recognizing that you are now a different person and you as a child, uh, you know, you've changed hugely. You are no longer that person anymore. Mm. And it allows you to detach from that experience because you can look at that child you as a different person mm. and to recognize that, you know, you are not that child you anymore and you don't need to behave and respond in the way that the child Gary would do. Mm. So, so going back to like uh, exactly dealing with this stuff. So, you know, now when I have um, an awkward feeling, I, I, if I can in a moment, try and bring up when I first felt like it and I let that emotion clear through me. So oftentimes it's more difficult than that. Are there other ways? I mean, I've tried journaling. That's also been helpful. So say, you, you know, you've got emotional traumas mm-hmm. and you know, diaphragmatic breathing or mm-hmm. rationalizing helps in the moment. Mm-hmm. How could you then go away and delve a little bit deeper on your own just to try and understand why you feel like that way? Okay, well, I think the question then becomes from this experience, what rules have I set myself about life? How does the world work? How do I work? What is the story and the meaning that is developed from these experiences? And that that is more of a cognitive approach again there. So, you know, what uh, these early experiences form the kind of rule books that we carry around in, in our lives, our beliefs, our values, and the story. So it's really recognizing, you know, what is the story that I'm telling myself about this experience? And then you can consider that story and consider whether that story is serving you or not serving you, and whether there is a more helpful way of interpreting that same experience. So if putting this into practice then, um, I'm experiencing emotion, I can remember the earliest time I felt about it. So for example, writing it out mm-hmm. and then analyzing actually what you've written out, is that in itself often enough to realize that you're being irrational in your thinking because the story that you're telling yourself quite clearly is false? Is it often just a case of bringing it to your awareness for you to recognize that actually it's, you know, I shouldn't feel like that anymore, it's clear? Or is there other things you need to do when it's there? Do you need to challenge things? Is there Writing it out is a good start um, because writing it out gives your thoughts that are sort of all over the place sometimes. Writing things out is always good because it gives structure and coherence to what's actually happening. So writing things out is really helpful. And then it's, as I said, it's about understanding, okay, well, from this experience, what what does this experience mean? What What is the story that I tell myself about this experience? And... Sometimes you can use the words as you did, you know, is this true, is this false, or is this helpful or unhelpful? Something that I like to talk about a lot with my clients is, is, is this balanced? Because a lot of, a lot of the problems, the, the cognitive errors that we have and unhelpful emotions is because we're looking at a situation in a, in a way that isn't balanced. Mm. So is this balanced? Is the way I'm looking at this situation balanced? And if not, what could I do? How could I look at it, things differently? What sentence could I come out with that would be a more balanced way of explaining this experience to myself? Mm. 
It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm gonna gonna throw some um, philosophy at you just to see what the, the psychological aspect of this is because okay, I'm, um, I'm a bit rusty on philosophy. No, no, you don't. So, for example, <laughs> yeah. um, Plato believed that we uh, what we view in the world, um, the goodness in, in in other people, is actually gaps in our own psychology. So, the beauty that we see mm-hmm. is actually because we lack it. So, if you see a bridge and you ask to describe it and you see strength and courage. That's because they're attributes that you want to aspire to be like. Okay. He also believed that if you are um, if you are viewing someone as being negative, someone as being rude or judgmental, that actually they're also in yourself because you wouldn't be able to recognise them if you didn't have those attributes in yourself. Yeah. I was wondering a psychological perspective on that. Is that accepted psychology or is it? It makes sense to me. I mean, a lot a lot of the um, the philosophy from that time period form the foundation of cognitive behavior therapy. I mean, cognitive behavior therapy, you know, has, hasn't been around actually, you know, that many years, but a lot of the foundations and the building blocks and the core principles are absolutely from philosophy and from, from that period of time. So yes, yeah. that they, they hold true and they are very much consistent with modern psychological thinking. Consistently, yeah, that, that's interesting. Okay, so that was the, the first one. The second one I'll throw at you was uh, Frederick Nietzsche. So what he believed, or my perception of what he believed, because I'm early on in my studying of him is that he believes that we as humans um, suffer from envy that's one of the main motivators and what he believed is that we shouldn't be looking at philosophies that teach acceptance Mm -hmm. because actually he believed that you need to take that feeling and channel it into developing your life to whatever you're envious of so if I put this onto a sporting situation when I was younger and a sportsman I would vent my frustrations through sport and I would channel the frustration through sport. And I, I found that my sporting um, got 10 times better when I channeled that energy, mm-hmm. because for me, it wasn't an, an, um, an energy source that I could I could use. Mm-hmm. When I'm reading Nietzsche, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so my understanding of psychology is the stuff that we've discussed so far. But what this guy's saying is, you don't need to use any psychology, it's an energy, you just need to channel it into developing your life. Okay. What is the, is, is that got some founding today? Well, that or? links most closely to Freud and defense mechanisms. Okay. So Freud would call that sublimation. Okay. And sublimation is when you take un, unacceptable instinctual drives and channel them into more socially acceptable pursuits. That is 100% what he's talking about. Yes. Yeah. So it's called sublimation. Freud would recognize it as sublimation. It's a defense mechanism to protect you from the unacceptable urges of the id Okay. Are you aware of the id yeah, and the superego? Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, perhaps, so perhaps you could just say okay. What the three so, are. The, so yes. Yeah. So the id is this bubbling cauldron of um, aggressive and sexual and primitive drives, um, and the superego is your moral system, okay. your moral compass, and your conscience. Um, and it's this idea that there are a lot of feelings that we experience either consciously or unconsciously a lot of emotions we experience that aren't acceptable so we repress them or we repression is is the fundamental defense mechanism Um, but there are a number of other defense mechanisms that help us to protect ourselves from these strong feelings emanating from the id and sublimation is one of them and the reason why um, the, maybe the, the aggressive drives that say, let me think of an example. So painting, for example, I'm not artistic at all, Gary. I have no, I'm not visual at all, but painters will channel certain drives. Um, 
rap artists yeah, yeah, will yeah. Uh, will uh, rather than ending up in prison or going around shooting yeah, people, they, they, they will cha channel it. Yeah, a lot um, of sportsmen fighters. As well. yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's recognised um, by Freud under a different name. So this this I think there's two distinctions here that I'd like like to discuss. Um, so. With Freud, sublimation, from from what I understand, is a self-defense mechanism. It's a, de a defense mechanism, yeah. What yeah. about, <coughs> what's the view on just using it as a strategy? So, for example, you are in a situation where um, there's a girl that you find attractive and you want to go and talk to her, and you're feeling all of these fears and problems come up. In my experience, you can channel them. It's like similarly, when you're about to public speak, all these fears come up. You can channel that energy into doing yes. a better job with what you do. So is it is it effective to use like from a psychological perspective? Is that healthy to be doing that to channel those feelings, or would you say actually you should be dealing with them? It's a good question. Again, either. Um, either. Again, that links with some of the sports psychology theories. So this idea of when you experience an increase in arousal levels. So arousal is your psychological and physiological blend of activation in, a, in the moment. Um, there is a theory in sports psychology called reversal theory, which is this idea that if you're experiencing arousal, you can reframe that as mm. this isn't arousal, this is excitement that I'm experiencing, which is kind of a similar thing, yeah, isn't it? it? Is, yeah. so, um, so there are a number of ways of describing it, depending on which school of theories you're looking at. But I, I would certainly say it is an option for mm. you to be able to relabel the experience and channel it in a certain way. I think that that makes sense to do. That would be a helpful thing to do. So that piece of wisdom that you've that we've just discussed there, if I'd have known about that 10 years ago, my life would be fundamentally different because there's a lot of times when I couldn't label the emotion. I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought it was all these different things that it wasn't. If I'd have just gone, right, channel this into doing something, go for a run, exercise more, just do something with it, Often, I guess, that the exercise or the exertion of the energy disperses it. You can probably then look at it a bit more rationally to be like, hang on a minute, that was that. But what I did is I, I let that go on top of me. I tried to meditate. I tried to do practice acceptance. I tried all these things to get rid of these emotions. And actually, what I should have done was just channel them. Mm -hmm. um, and being from a sports background, that was my, my, my most natural way of doing things anyway. Mm -hmm. It's almost like I learned, it's not as if I... I, I Beget the lessons that I've learned, but it's just interesting to say in the moment if you are feeling like that, you could just channel it into something, yes. and then you can analyze it later. Um, no, that's that's super interesting. So, so the the other part of, of that question was, um, do you? I mean, as a psychologist, are you? Is there much tuition or learning based on um, sexual energy? So, on channeling sexual energy, is that something that is? Freud spoke about or Freud very much was um, talking about that yes I mean one of the the disagreement between Freud and Jung who Jung was Freud's you're aware of Jung's work yeah, 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 read around that. Student, yeah. so one of Jung's criticisms of Freud and one of the reasons they went their separate ways was he believed that Freud over sexualized human behavior um, okay. so but yes Freud very much believed that a lot of the energies coming from the id were sexual drive okay so Obviously, different people have different levels of sexual drive. Um, some, you know, day to day, they can be different. What's the, the advice on how to keep them under control? Because um, in my experience, you know, working um, in the dating world, it's kind of the undoing of a lot of people. Not being able to control that primitive sexual drive um, leads you to just being too try hard, being, you know, messing up relationships because you can't keep in check. Mm -hmm. Is there some boundaries or parameters well, of how to? 
it comes back to what we were saying with sublimation and there are other there are other defense mechanisms that you can use you can repress them so you can not acknowledge them you can deny them that they're there in the first place you can have reaction formation which is where you acknowledge those feelings and then feel disgusted with yourself so therefore you don't feel those feelings anymore because it's unpleasant to do so um, so there are a number of ways that you can protect yourself yeah. from those feelings but they're all about you not acknowledging those feelings yeah. or channeling them which might be a more appropriate way so that's the distinction and you either because well, obviously you know your sex drive in my experience a healthy sex drive obviously you know there are probably people that have got out of control sex drives but for the, for the general public the best advice is to channel it into something is that that would be the best because i think ignoring things and, and not dealing with them is you know eventually if you're going to repress them they're going to come up at some yes. point and, yes and ignoring is never up, good yeah yeah and it's a very powerful emotion the sexual emotion so it's like i feel like um in my industry and actually you know as, as a guy no one has this discussion no one talks about your sexual urges you're just accepted to know you know how to deal with them and i, th I don't think people can i mm. think p people are struggling uh, I was at a, doing a course on Saturday and I was speaking to people about this and, and they had no idea whatsoever that it was even a sexual urge that could be controlled. It's just the way the world is and mm -hmm. there's just no information or, or anything available. So what I was kind of hoping to get, I mean, for me personally, I channel it. Mm -hmm. um, I can channel that energy into something creative, mm -hmm. uh, like doing a podcast episode or exercising. I just see it as energy now. Mm -hmm. um, but is that, is, that the, is that the best possible advice? I think advice? so. That makes sense to me, Gary. I think, you know, something that struck a chord with me there with what you were saying is that, you know, this idea that people don't feel they have a choice. And it's the same with emotions generally, be they sexual energy or just emotions generally, is people, people get stuck in a way of thinking that they don't feel things can be different. They don't feel they have a choice. So whether we're talking about negative emotions or whether we're talking about sexual energy and drives, it's this idea that you, there are, there's always something that you can do to make a different choice, whether yeah. that's channeling it, whether that's challenging it, whether that's meditating, all these kind of, it's getting in the habit of not accepting this is the way things are and I have no choice. What you're saying is absolute gold. Um, something that I, that I do, because I, I like to actually, I think this is a really good question. Um, when I'm coaching people and they are exhibiting that behavior where that's the way the world is and there's no changes, what I get them to do is to state what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And then one of my favorite catchphrases is now there's three solutions and I'll outline three solutions. And I use this strategy in all areas of my life. If I have a problem or an emotion, I think, okay, there's three ways of dealing with this. What I was going to ask you was if someone has negative or positive emotions and they, and they can't cope with them, what would be the three ways? So just knowledge that you can do these three, even without doing them allows me to relax even exactly. if i don't deal with it what would you say the go-to three ways are what are your three ways <laughs> dealing with emotion <laughs> yeah. yeah so one of them is i i meditate on it okay and um, the second one's i write about it and the third one is i do an emotional clearance and an emotional clearance is i um go back to the earliest time i felt like it mm -hmm. and i process that um the difference between that and the meditation with the meditation i'm just trying to shut off my thoughts mm -hmm. to give myself some respite but is there yeah. Oh, like okay. Well, one of, one of the things I, I sort of a simple model that I explain to people is this idea of having sort of like your emotional mind and your rational mind. Okay. Um, and your emotional mind will tend to look at things in an unbalanced way. It will tend to look at things in black and white and it will tend to 
look at things very rigidly. So what is the sentence, what is the statement that's causing the problem? Mm. And is it rigid? If it's rigid, if it's set in stone, if it's, um, you know, there, there's no kind of leeway, it's set in stone, this is the way things are, then that's not balanced. And then it becomes the, you know, is there, is there a more balanced way of looking at this? Mm. Is this true in every area of my life? Has this always been true? Mm. Has there ever been one moment, one experience, one example where it hasn't been true? Because then it's just, as you said, it's opening up your mind to the possibility yeah. that things, it doesn't have to be this way. I absolutely get that. And I think we spoke about this before, about Bayesian logic or Bayesian yeah. reasoning. Yeah, it's funny. So I was reading a book just about economics and it was talking about how you should never assign 100% truth to something. You should always assign a percentage of truth. And Holly and I were discussing it. It's interesting because he was saying that's what you do in psychology. Similarly, you don't look at things 100%. And if you can take 10% off or 5% off, it takes the pressure off. It does. So with polarized thinking and emotions, what is it about the polarized thinking that sets off the emotional response? Because obviously you're, you're, you're thinking in extremes, but why, why would that set off an emotional trigger? Because when you are thinking in extremes it doesn't allow any flexibility for a range of different responses a range of different thoughts it's 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 an infringement of your autonomy and one of our basic human needs is this idea that we all we all want to experience autonomy so if we experience a thought that's very rigid and very black and white then suddenly your freedom has been restricted wow does that make sense it does make sense so actually um yeah it does make sense because the, you're, you're, what you're really doing is putting your handcuffs on yourself and saying, I have to be like this. Exactly. And you're getting rid of that freedom. Or the world has to be like this, whatever it may be. Exactly. And that's the biggest barrier when people come to see me. They have a sort of impoverished way of looking at the world because their map of the world is not as, um, it's, it doesn't give them the behavioral and emotional options it's this is the way things are this is the way the world works it's set in stone it's black and white i see this pattern over and above anything else and actually the question i have for you there i mean obviously you don't talk about individuals but for me personally i can categorically say that the reason why i'm more emotionally stable now at this stage of my life is because the last 10 years i've read educational books which do two things they allow me to recognize i don't know everything and they also allow me to learn more so what's happened over a period of time is that I recognize that things are never really factual. There's always more to learn. And I think that's allowed me to cope better because I recognize that if I'm feeling a certain way, that actually it's probably not right most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that as a long-term strategy, just reading educational stuff has just been unbelievably good for me. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's spoken about in psychology? Or is that more self-development? It is, but I think the thing that you that you do very well, and as I said, most people don't, is the ongoing consistency of doing that. You know, I think most people want a quick fix, um, and most people, you know, they will read they will read a particular book, expecting that book to change their lives without applying the strategies religiously, consistently, on an ongoing basis. So you have made the choice to develop a habit of reading and investing in yourself, mm -hmm. and that habit has given you information, but more importantly, it's conditioned your mind to help you to realize that actually there are a number of different ways I can look at every experience in life. That is, again, um, so interesting. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm able to do that is because I, I've made my career out of it. So I have a podcast where I talk about self-development. I have self-development courses. So I've made myself um, have leverage on myself to consistently improve. One of the things that I do with my clients is I get them all to self-express, so to create their own podcast, writing, something of self-expression and creative. So 
if anyone's listening to this that is struggling with their emotions, I, in, in my experience, keeping a blog and publishing it online, doing videos, just documenting what's going on and making yourself accountable to do a certain amount of them, that in itself is going to allow you to just take control of your problem. Because again, I think that the feeling of being helpless, when you feel, there's, for me, there's nothing worse. When I'm feeling a certain way and I don't know why and I feel helpless, I feel like the world is coming to an end. And is, is that just standard stuff that you see? Absolutely. And again, it's because your choices seem so limited. It's because you've decided, not intentionally, but you've decided that this is the way things are. This is the way I am. This is the way the world is. There's no evidence that I can come up with that this is going to change. Therefore, I'm stuck. And that is a very painful and um, disempowering yeah, experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so being a psychologist, do you find that when you work with other people, it's allowed you to cope with your... Does it, does, well, a couple of questions. Does it give you perspective okay. to realise, hang on, my life's not that bad? Or because you're talking about the coping strategies all the time, do you find it's easier for you to implement them? Or has it made no difference whatsoever to your own mental well-being? That's a very good question. Has it made a difference to my mental well-being? Um, not in the sense that I recognise the patterns and 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 uh, I'm then thinking, how can I apply this to myself and my own life? It gives me purpose when I can help other people. Um, and I've noticed that despite how different people are in many ways, the patterns and problems they exhibit are actually quite similar. And I mm. think, you know, one, one thing people feel is when they come to see me a lot of times, they feel stuck, they feel that they're the only people that are suffering in the oh, way mate, that they're I suffering. Felt, I felt that. Exactly. It's horrendous. Yeah, exactly. And it's not true. It's and absolute it, it's nonsense. Not ex absolutely. And just to know that when I, because I've been doing this for a little while, when I start recognizing patterns in people and start saying, well, you probably do this as well. I imagine you probably do this. And they say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly how do you know that? I said, well, <laughs> you know, I, I see, you see these patterns yeah, in yeah. people. So even though we are very complex and, and um, very different, in many ways, the, the challenges that we face and the stories we tell ourselves that create problems are quite similar. Because you've touched on a few things there, right? So um, a few things that I educate um, people on are, first of all, having a purpose in life, which is something you touched on is fundamentally life training for anyone because it allows you to channel and focus your energy on something. The other one is the support. So to recognize that you're, um, you're not alone in feeling like that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I set up was a secret Facebook community for all of my clients. That gives everyone emotional support to know, or support in anything, to know that you're, what you're feeling is not independent from, it, from anyone else. What I've found since I've done that is that um, I just think having a community where you don't feel like you're alone and that other people are going through something very similar is extremely beneficial to your mental well-being, as is having a purpose. And mm -hmm. obviously these are linked to having um, healthy emotion, emotions in your life. And there are other things so rather than dealing with emotions in the moment, are there other things associated other than having a purpose in the community that can allow you to kind of remedy these before they come up? So in advance, are, is there any other advice like listening to music, for example, anything that would aid your... Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about there is the, the field of positive psychology, really. So, you know, what, what's, what thinking styles, attitudes and activities can help you to enhance your emotional well-being. And there's been um, quite a lot of research in that area just recently, in fact. It okay. comes from the humanistic theory before that. But, um, but what they've fundamentally discovered is that the thinking styles contribute, our thinking styles and our actions contribute up to sort of 40% of our, our emotional well-being. 
And some of the thinking styles that have been examined in detail are things like being grateful. So, oh, being so gratitude, gratitude optimism, gratitude and optimism are the two that have been explored. Are they most, linked? Most, they, they're not necessarily linked, but they are both um, very much related to emotional well-being. I want to delve into these. So when I first heard about gratitude about seven, eight years ago, and I felt myself trying to be grateful for things. And I'll be honest with you, I was going through the motions. I didn't feel grateful because a lot of bad things had happened in my life and I'd had to work every single inch for what I had myself. And I, I didn't feel grateful for anything. What can you do? I mean, if that's something that's gonna help you, if you genuinely don't feel grateful for things, is there a way of you know, finding something? And people say, you know, be grateful that the sun's shining, be grateful. The thing is, it's context, okay? The context of my life that didn't mean anything to me. So when I when I read or hear people say that, I, I just personally think that's nonsense because mm. that's not the context of my life. No. Is there a way where perhaps I could have felt gratitude for something or is it, you know? Only with practice really. I think one thing I will say is the more relaxed you are, so if you were to meditate, if you were to be more relaxed, then you are more likely to, um, to experience the, the experience of being grateful. So so calming your mind first? Calming and slowing your mind first so you get you get rid of all the thoughts that could potentially interrupt that process. This is something I wasn't doing at that time, so yes. I feel like that could have helped. So and it I, makes sense actually, because it's difficult to be grateful if you've got a thousand things <laughs> running around you. And also, so stepping back from the, the, the frame through which you see the world, the lens through which you see the world. So, you know, you're, you're quite right that, you know, context is key and actually, well, my story is this and actually, based on my story, mm. I find it very difficult to be grateful for the things that you tell me I should be grateful Absolutely. for. Absolutely. But if you can, but those are still thoughts. Yeah. Those are still thoughts. So stepping back so from So stepping the back from the thoughts and the lens through which you yeah. see the world. So you, so you're, you slow and still your mind <laughs> and then think about something very simple that you're, that you're yeah. grateful for. Well, that's interesting actually, because over the years I've become more calm as a person and naturally I'm more grateful because I'm calmer. Uh, well, that in itself is interesting. Um, so the other one I want to delve into is optimism. Uh, I know nothing about what you're about to say, so I'm quite interested. Uh, I, it was my belief that we have a natural tendency to be negative towards life because we say that there's a potential dangerous situation. You're, you should look at it that way because if you're wrong once, you're going to likelihood that you may die. Uh, is that that's about all I know? About yeah, being that's optimistic. true from an evolutionary perspective. That's okay. true. The cost. The cost of being wrong is far greater, yeah, and, yeah. and it's been it's been proven that we do have this bias, and that actually we fear loss and pain far more than than we value pleasure, and yeah. um, so it's 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 served us in evolutionary terms to be hypersensitive and hyper alert to danger. So based on that, it's worth investing a bit of time to develop the attitude of being more optimistic. And how do you do that? So pretty simply, just just imagining scenarios in the future that um, imagine things going the way you want them to go. So think about a very simple um, idea or an action or an upcoming event of some kind and just imagining things going the way you want them to go. If you adopt that approach, uh, and we've spoken about this, so I, I kind of know where this is going now, but I used to do that. And what I would find is that the reality of not achieving it or the reality of achieving it never, like if I envisaged something going right and it went wrong, that made me really emotionally volatile because I wasn't prepared for things not to go right. So now 
in my mind, I visualize or have a perception of how it's going to be, but I also understand that it's going to be 10 times harder. I just understand that, mm-hmm. that it's going to be more difficult. And the other one is like, when you get there, it's never how you think it's going to be. No. You never get that feeling. So no. how do you combat both of those? Because they're both... Well, I think the first thing is I've I've always found it's more helpful to get somebody to visualize themselves achieving their goal, but overcoming obstacles en route to achieving that goal. Because the world is not all sunshine sunshine and rainbows, is it? So I think it's, I, I get people to visualize visualize challenges and obstacles coming up but you being able to deal with those you being able to find the strength the resources to be able to cope with and overcome those those challenges so it's almost like okay this is sorry sorry about the noise by the way there's an alarm going off but so it's almost like um this is what i want to achieve so say for example uh so i want to lose um 12 pounds of body fat okay so rather than just visualizing yourself saying right there I am, I've got 10% body fat, I've lost 12 pounds, I look great. You visualize yourself where there's a barbecue and you don't have a beer. You visualize potential issues that come up. This is almost like writing a business plan yeah. and looking at things that might go wrong. And Identifying being... the high risk situations, absolutely. So, this, so this, this is interesting. So you look at the situation that you're about to go into, you have your outcome, but you identify, it's called identifying the high risk. That's issues. what, yes, yes. Okay. And the idea is it develops self-efficacy, which is your belief that you can overcome obstacles in pursuit of your goal. So if you have a coping strategy prepared, for a bit like you were saying with your routines, with your yeah. clients, if you have a routine prepared in advance, then you're not going to be caught off guard. So you are mentally preparing yourself and therefore, and when you mentally prepare yourself and you take the right path, you exercise these coping strategies, you then have belief that you'll be able to do that next time and next time. Yeah, so, so your you, self-efficacy grows. So your self-efficacy would be linked also with getting out of your comfort zone? Um, yes, not necessarily. It depends on whether you set challenging goals or not. But yeah. yes, challenging goals are more likely to improve your self-efficacy more significantly mm. than, than easily achievable goals. So yeah. yes. So what I used to do when I was younger as opposed to now I do what you suggest, I actually look at what's coming up uh, and look at the challenges before they arise. Obviously, sometimes some come up that you're not expecting. What I used to do, which I feel like was more of my youthful energy, I would just go, well, I'm just going to go and have a go. And I would develop the coping coping strategy afterwards. And the way that I would do that is I wouldn't allow myself to be negative. So I would have this experience and I would say, what, what did I do right? What would I add next time? And I started to build self-efficacy, I yeah. believe is the term. Yeah. Yeah. by just throwing myself in there and doing that. Um, that was extremely challenging, but I feel like what I did at the time was actually give myself some fundamental ways of realizing I can go into any situation and I'm not going to die, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can cope with it. Is that, again, is that linked to... Very, with- very good and very helpful and well done you for being able to do that because sometimes it's quite difficult to not allow yourself to think negatively. Well, it, so, it, it, it was, and it's something I learned yeah, along the way. Yeah, so that <laughs> like, it does take practice, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, but now, And the other thing that's really useful as well is to consider what kind of person you you have to become in order to to achieve these goals. So if I'm going to achieve this goal, if I'm going to achieve this desired outcome and overcome temptation and and overcome challenge, what kind of person do I need to become? What kind of qualities and traits do I need to to exhibit? That's again, yeah, it's a really good point because you know, I recognize the person I am now is the person that can deal with the life that I have now. I couldn't have had this life 5 years ago because I wouldn't have been the person that could have could have coped with it. So what happens then if you're um you know you fall off the wagon a little bit so you know you set a goal to to lose a bit of weight and then you have a bad day i mean you know habit formation stuff like that's a whole different podcast but 
how do you deal with the emotional emotions attached of feeling like you failed in a way that can get you back on track? Is there literature on this or is there a Absolutely. way? Absolutely. Okay. It all depends whether you have a coping strategy in place. Mm. And um, that, right. that is simple as that. So it's, it's useful to spend time, no matter how confident you feel about achieving your goal, you may feel super confident and you may feel everything's going to go fine and there'll be no obstacles and no challenges and you'll probably be wrong. So it's, it's recognizing that, okay, things could come along that may disrupt me. And if they do, this is what I'm going to do. If I fall off the wagon, this is what I'm going to say to myself. This is what I'm going to do. This is who I'm going to call to support for support. This is what I'm going to say to myself. This is what I'm going to picture in my mind. Since so you just touched on a few interesting things then. So when you're when when you're when your back's up against the wall, right, and you need to cope, I think you mentioned a couple of things. So you can say something to yourself, yeah, which, via an affirmation or a mantra, yeah. You can move or, your body, yeah, or interpret the experience differently, yeah. yeah. Okay, so interpret it differently. You mentioned support, which means what? Having someone that you can call or speak to, yes. as a support network, yeah, and that's also massively beneficial. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, was there anything else other than that? Were they the main? Are they the main attributes? It's basically feeling feeling like you have. You know, it's almost like the analogy of, you know, running up to face the enemy and you turn around and you're by yourself, right? Yeah. You've got no chance. Whereas yeah. if yeah. you turn around and you've got your mentors, you've got people that can help you and you feel supportive, that's the kind of analogy. Absolutely. You know, works for addiction and, you know, the support groups with sort of um, the 12-step programs, things like that. But, yeah, having somebody that you can, you can rely on, who can support you, particularly in those high-risk situations, is only going to help. You don't want to become overly reliant on, on somebody else. You want to be able to, to develop these mechanisms and these strategies that are within your control as well. But it certainly doesn't help. Uh, certainly doesn't harm to have social support there as well. I think doing, achieving any goal, you know what it's like, you oh, need yeah. the support from others around you, everyone's yeah. sort of rooting for you. Absolutely. I mean, what you've just said is exactly the journey I went on. So we had some therapy sessions together and you gave me the tools to be able to do regression on myself. So I feel like that was, it's true. I felt like I had the support when I needed it. Obviously, I knew when I, when I did my regression that I had you available if I walked into something. So I wasn't completely alone. But I think this is something that we uh, a lot of people overlook is having support, and it's okay to actually admit that you need some help. Absolutely, um, because we all struggle emotionally. And um, something Cody said to me a little while ago is like, "You'd be amazed at the people that suffer anxiety." And obviously, you see this, and I, I, I don't. I'm not in the same world, but you see what some very successful people. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. More often than not, very successful people because of the the pressure and expectations they put on themselves. Okay, so um, I feel like this would be a, a great place to uh, to end today's episode. I feel like I need to listen to it a few times to take on some of the knowledge. So for anyone that um, wants to get in, in contact with Hoddy, that would need some more assistance with um, emotional trauma or you know psychological issues, um, your website is hoddy.co.uk. That's correct. Which is k-h-o-d-y.co.uk. Uh, and obviously then you can get in touch. I think Hoddy's developed some online programs as well that can uh, help you. assist you. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for being uh, My pleasure. On the show today. I look yeah. forward to doing it again. Fantastic. Quality. Okay. Okay. Cheers, buddy.